Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a conversation with Todd Haynes, the director of the NYFF 61 opening night selection, May-December, which will be opening at Film at Lincoln Center this Friday exclusively on 35mm. With May-December, Todd Haynes brings together his career-long preoccupations with the nature of performance, the revelatory possibilities of melodrama, and the inner lives of women, to a thrilling, masterful crescendo. Drawing from a real-life tabloid fodder tale of a middle school teacher's affair with her much younger student, May-December is a prism-like narrative about celebrity, power, and the deceptions we inflict on each other and ourselves in the name of desire. To celebrate the North American premiere of May-December at NYFF 61, the festival also presented the U.S. premiere of Image Book, a short film from Todd Haynes that explores the production and making of May-December. Proceeding this screening, Haynes spoke with playwright and actor Jeremy O. Harris in the following conversation. May-December opens in our theaters this Friday with a special sneak preview this Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Get tickets now at filmlink.org slash May-December. Now please enjoy the conversation between Todd Haynes and Jeremy O. Harris. All NYFF 61 talks are sponsored by HBO. Wow, I just got to hug Todd Haynes. Um, I just I wanted I wanted to do that in front of camera so it could be like saved for posterity. Um, uh, you guys, uh, hi, I'm Jeremy O'Harris, and you're much closer than I thought you would be. Um, like it, when I imagined doing a talk, I was like, we're gonna be on a stage and be very removed, but you guys are in it. Um, this is Todd Haynes. Uh, you know, his. Name is now a verb, you know? It's like, you know, it's one of those, he's a father to many. Um, uh, I'm one of his children. I hope he accepts me. Um, but um, this is so exciting because we just saw a new short of yours. Um, can you tell us about it? What what inspired you to make yeah, it? Yeah, well, it was a commission along with the retrospective at Pompidou, which occurred in, in May of this year. It was quite a month for me with a full retrospective at Pompidou and then... And then uh, the premiere of May December in Cannes, and then back to Pompidou to to premiere May December the finished film after it, the film the film after it premiered officially at at Cannes, um, and they commission filmmakers to do a piece of work, and the the translation is where I am now or something to that effect in French, um, and I think most people they give you like six thousand dollars to do a short. So you, most people are piggybacking onto what they're doing, of course. And so I just thought, okay, let's just um, uh, insert into an, an already incredibly crowded 23-day shooting schedule in Savannah for the movie itself, a few extra things um, that I asked of my actors. Uh, the quotations, they're basically just two passages. One is from um, Bergman's persona. It's the Bibby Anderson um, erotic um, uh, memory of uh, having a, a recitation of the sex scene, sex memory she has on the beach with these two teenage boys with another woman. And, uh, and the other is just one of my very favorite passages from Godard from two or three things I know about her. And Godard passed away when we were in pre-production on mid-December. So it all, all the sort of elements were, and then we did those additional shots of empty sets and the camera alone in the room, very Godardian, you know. Um, and it wasn't until we got into post, because I figured we'd be figuring out how to make this, yeah. you know, in the editing process with Afonso Gonzalez, my editor. And, and then realizing that in France, you can use passages from other sources from other films. You can use photo photographs and images from films without licensing them as we have to do in the United States under the girth of artistic freedom of expression, right? So I was like, okay, wow, excellent. I'm gonna use my image book as the framing element and Godard had made a feature film called Le Image Book. So this is a, another little internal, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a meditation on 
you know, the, the, the films I was looking at and the ideas I was trying to collate for the making of May, December and the themes of May, December and, and, and stuff we actually shot on set with these amazing actors. So that's really where it came from. It's it's so beautiful, and I you know I think well, one of the first moments is so great to me because I'm a Charles Melton fan, like huge, 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 and I think he's the so nicest. You knew him from Riverdale. You saw yeah, him on yeah, Riverdale because I, River- I yes. didn't. I did know him. Uh, from okay, Riverdale. okay. Because yeah. I just watched well, some of the also, first. Also, you guys, if you want to see surrealism on television, watch Riverdale. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> it's, it's you know it's the it's the 2020s the 1920s were all about surrealism too. But he didn't enter the show till the second season, yes. and I only watched some of the first, so I never saw him. On I, I think he's just a wonderfully centered actor, and yes. yet like I think inside of the chaos of that series, it's easy to imagine that he's not. And I think the opening shot of this was so exciting because it like t- it teaches an audience like oh yeah this young man is a very very serious performer Absolutely. and can ke- and not only was ke- helped to keep up. Um, then the seriousness not only helped him keep up with uh, you, but it helped him keep up with these amazing actresses he had to act beside. Yeah. Um, so it was amazing. But I, I I love process films so much because I love um, I I think that in this moment right now, this moment that you know um, people keep making about Marvel films, and I want to make about just. Um, art, right? Um, we're, we're running away from giving artists a chance to actually have a process. The process now becomes like, what do other people think of the work and not what do I think of it? Um, and so I'm curious to you, like, um, when you're building out an image book or building out your process, like, what are... Um, what are your obsessions? Like, how do you, um, is it all, Im- is, is it all tangible images from things we know? How often do you fall into your own image books? You know, like, I think there's an image, I think it's from one of your films in there, but maybe no, I imagined it. There's no images from my films. There's a photo- photograph of Julianne in there by a, by a photographer. Um, but yeah, it's always this process of trying to find a visual um, parallel to what's on the page in the script. And this this is true for whether it's scripts I've written or scripts I haven't written. You always have to leave the page and begin to turn everything that's written on the page into the visual medium of film. And so I always think of my image books as initially a nonverbal communication between myself and my DP. But very quickly that becomes, as, I, as I've learned over the years, how useful it is, of course, the production designer, of course, to, but then actors. And you know, I guess I kept learning how many uh, uh, facets of the creative collaborative process can, of course, dive into, dive into this. We had to make, in this particular case, we had to make May, December very quickly when a little moment of, of unanimity emerged between my schedule, Julianne's, and Natalie's last fall. My amazing producing team jumped on it, got some funding together as best they could, and we just, we just went for it. To, to facilitate that, to make that possible, and there were also new relationships for me in this, Sam Lesenkamp, my production designer, um, uh, April Napier, my costume designer, and then Ed Lockman, my longtime DP, injured his femur bone uh, and couldn't shoot the movie. And I only heard about this two weeks before we were starting principal, I mean, before we were starting full pre-production. And so I was like, fuck, I got to find a DP, you know? And I went to a few people I'd been hoping to have been, been work, you know, did a commercial with here or there or whatever, weren't available. And then I, and then I, and then I called up Kelly Reichert and I said, Cal, can I use, can I use Chris? Can I borrow Chris, please? Um, as absolutely pe- not. As people, as I can tell people, some people may know, but for those who don't, Kelly Reichert is a dear, dear friend and one of the great uh, independent filmmakers working in the world today. Um, she, uh, her last, what, five, six films were all shot by Chris Balbal. Now, I know, I've known Chris for years because he worked under Harris Savides, who was one of the greats and who passed away. I don't even know how long now. It just feels like the world isn't, hasn't been the same since. But um, he worked with Gus Van Sant, and Chris came up through the Harris world. So I've known Chris forever. And, but then I've just watched what's been happening with Kelly. 
Chris, film after film. So not only she was like, oh my God, yes. And she tracked him. I, could, I was like, I can't reach him. Could you? She trapped, found him in Chile doing, shooting a commercial. And he got back to me in two days and he was like, I'm down. I'm down. Speaking of Chile, I was literally worried. I was like, wait, did, did Pablo Lorraine see that you were working with Natalie Portman? He's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to get Ed Lockman. Because I was like, what I'm is gonna happening? Break, I'm going to break Ed Lockman's leg. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Because guess who Ed is working with right now, Pablo? I know. Yeah, I yes. know. Well, I was yes. literally like, I was like, so he cheated on him with so Pablo Lorraine. It's insane. Fantastically yeah. cool. And Angelina Jolie on yes. the Maria Callas movie, right? So I can lend out. Yeah. We can all share each other. We can share. Right? Very poly- we can share each other with situations attached. So, <laughs> so okay, let's get in. Let's get into the movie we're we're talking about because you know there is a long-standing relationship at its center, at its core, and something that. I felt was missing from the image book uh, in some way, and I, but maybe it's just because. Of, yes, <laughs> thank you. No, you got it right well, on the head. It's it, it's maybe missing from the image book, but it's not missing. From, I think I find parts of this yes. incredibly funny myself. But <laughs> but no, I or maybe I, that's just me. <clears throat> it was very funny seeing this in, in France with French people who were just like sort of uh, take for granted like um, the relationship, like you know, made a similar relationships are just sort of like I think a genre, like the main genre of cinema in France. <laughs> they call it sex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just what it is, you know. Um, uh, and um, I and and so people weren't laughing, and I was laughing, and I felt like people thought I was like a weird freak, and I was like, mm. and you know, I I always get like, um, I think this happens with a lot of artists I love, like where people. Um, because you, I think people who are actually quite intelligent are also quite silly, you know, and have yes. like a, a sense of joy and and youth to them. I, I think it, they go hand in hand. Yes, they, they always try to like you know beef up their references. Right? Oh, it's only Douglas Sir, <laughs> only Douglas Sir. Well, and I was like, yeah, but like there's also like some Lifetime original movies here, right? Like there's some like movies of the week, and I wonder like how yes. much that sort of like soap opera movies of the week uh, logic came into your formulating of this film, and how much of a um, of an ally Julianne Moore was in translating that for everyone because she she knew how to write those lines, right? Yeah. Like she had this early career in sort no, of like low so television, you know? No, you're so right. Um, she, we, you know, to be, to be honest, I was not thinking of the tabloid format or, or, or the TV movie in the stylistic language I was thinking about for May, December. And I, and I felt like a certain coolness and 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 reserve was was needed in the visual sort of language motifs and also this whole thing of direct address with yeah. the um which you see being marked throughout the all the all the double pages that you see obviously are from the image book that that go through the movie um, and you see, and even really surprising moments of Joseph Cotton looking at the lens of the camera in shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And it only happens in one moment. Or Peter Finch at the very end of Sunday Bloody Sunday, all of a sudden turning to the lens and giving his final remarks to the camera. Um, but otherwise, it's Godard and it's Bergman and it's very famous, you know, European art cinema masters where you have come to expect those moments and they're not. They're not breaking the fourth wall in the sense of an aside to the audience commentary. There's something quite different. In May, December, it was always about the mirror. But none of that would have worked without a couple of essential components. And I should talk about one of them right away, which is one, the music. Yeah, the go-between. The go-between score. Because when I was putting together my image book initially, I watched the go-between again on, on Turner Classic well, also, Movies. Also, if you guys haven't watched this movie, you should watch it. It's so good. It's so weird. It's so And also weird. has a lot of really great echoes inside of this movie as well. I mean, I mean, it's its own, you know, beautiful, fucking crazy Joseph uh, Losey movie. Um, and, and this Michelle Legrand score. And, and it's a movie that for some reason has fallen out of circulation in the United States. It's very hard to get it. Yeah, yeah. How did you, did you, did you, you My, just so, streamed it? Or how did you yeah, get it? How did I you watch it? it? Somebody, what did you do? Um, I, have a, I have an editor who is who I work with. He's an editor director, Pedos. He's amazing, but he can give me any movie I want. Right. I don't. I, I, well, I, I don't. I think he's streaming them. I don't know what's happening. Right. My my assistant. They showed it at the Walter Reed a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, it must have been around the time that it then did uh, show up on Turner and maybe Criterion. I saw it on Turner. Turner, but like. Uh, 
my I needed my assistant Ben to get it as a link that we could all share. But I said to everybody who I, I was like sending my uh, image book around online to everybody and said, look at the pages of the book, but play this score as you watch it. Because it was something, it was about that crazily aggressive, in your face music, right? That sort of slaps you silly from the first frame of the movie yeah. and makes you go, what the fuck is going on? But also, I think that the, the way it slaps you is also kind of Brechtian, right? Like, I think that melodrama, when when consciously understood as like a dramatic form, that is important. And if you haven't read Peter Brooks's Melodramatic Imagination, read it. It's great. It's easy. It's online. Um, but like, it it can teach you so much more about what's happening. And I feel like that moment when the score hits us the hardest, right, is when she has that hot dog line, right? Right. And I think that a that teaches you how to watch the movie, and b it makes you have this sort of emotional remove that's I think necessary. To um, to not fall into certain traps that I think um, narrativizing real life events can often hap- right, have. Was right. that self conscious or? Yeah, I mean, to me that that's just a sting. Like that just happens to be a sting that that accompanies a zoom and a, and a line that is a humorous line, but a line of insight into yes. a sense of a, a, the first one of the first little insights into Gracie's sort of tenuous state of stability where something very small, like not having enough hot dogs, seems a very grave concern at that moment for her. Um, but to me, it was like we start, the script began with these images of butterflies breeding, laying eggs on milkweed plants in, in Georgia. And of course, that metaphor can be applied to the story of Joe. But I felt it was maybe important to do something to that metaphor and not be too earnest about it but to undermine it right away mm-hmm. with this sense of ominous, uh, doomful warning that this score registers for me. So that you're watching this beautiful image, but you're like, da-dum, da-dum, and you're like, what the, you know, what, what is this movie about? I thought it was like a, a romance or a Todd Haynes like lesbian movie or whatever. <laughs> Uh, All the gays want it to be lesbian. Every gay I talked to, I was like, why didn't they kiss? I was like, what? When's it going to happen? But it more was a a mode of reading, of of feeling that great distance that Sammy had established in the script and inviting the audience to take an active role in finding a kind of pleasurable indeterminacy about what was going on in this in the story. And so that music accompanied the entire uh, making of the film. I literally scored the script to the Michelle Legrand music. I Then we started to shoot scenes. As soon as we started shooting, I was playing the music in that. every scene that didn't have dialogue recording, right? So the crew was like, and, and Paul's here, who was our camera operator. And you Shout know- Paul. And <laughs> I wish, where's Chris? Chris was going to be here, but then he didn't make it. I, he did a commercial. Um, April's here. and But, um, but uh, yeah, it put, put us all on the same page, stylistically, tonally. But, of course, the real thing that makes this film have its dimensionality of wit, of disturbing content, of a poignancy, I think, I hope, are the actors totally. and the performers. And so you can you can do that frame. You can do, like, in fact, the scene, I've, I've mentioned this before for people who may have heard this, um, the thing in the script that made me want to absolutely make the movie was Elizabeth's final monologue. <laughs> and it made me think of this scene in the Bergman movie Winter Light with Ingrid Thulin. It's one of the last direct address um, frames in the image book, looking right into the lens in a medium black and white frame with a neutral background. And she can, delivers a letter in the, in the scene in an extended single shot. And I remember watching it as a kid, a teenager, and just being like shattered by how powerful that was and how simple it was. But of course, it relied entirely of, on her. Yeah. And that performance. So these are all, in, you know, these can be interesting and, you know, distancing or not uh, motifs. 
but it's the performances that bring them to life and that have to fill those frames. Absolutely. Um, I, I have a question for you that's going to lead to like my next section of questioning, which is, I love actors, I love actresses, you obviously do as well. Um, who is more insecure, a mom or an actress? Uh, all the great a actors I've worked with always stun me in, 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 in how much fear they share with me. The best actor on set is me because I'm the one who has to hide it and make everybody else feel completely secure. Like I know everything I'm doing and I know why and make them feel as secure as possible. Um, but I've just always been so moved by time and again how Kate Blanchett is scared, how Julianne is scared. Yeah. You know, I think moms just have to follow instincts and address immediate issues that arise right in the moment. Mm -hmm. And of course, some people have maybe better instincts for that than others, and yeah. or you learn by doing. But actors, I think. Um, the best ones, I think, they strip naked each time and they pretend they it's almost like they've never done it before. I, I love that. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. That's also, see, it helped me lead into my next question. Um, and I feel really bad. So if you haven't seen the movie, I am going to ruin parts of it right now. <laughs> um, I have a friend here who was like, I'm going to come, but I don't want spoilers. So I was like, babe, I'm not going to give any spoilers. <laughs> there will be spoilers. Um, so... My, I think the Rosetta Stone line of the entire movie on like a dramaturgical level is, you know, um, uh, the most dangerous person is... Um, um, uh, uh, insecure, insecure people are, are very dangerous. Yes, I'm very yeah. secure. I'm secure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put, Put that, that in, in the there. movie. So yeah. good. So good. And then the shot after that, when you when you stay on Natalie and all every bit of actress confidence she had, movie star confidence she had, it disappears. And all of the insecurity of a real actress, a, yeah. like, you know, shows up. And then you see her do the scene and it's like five takes of her being like, well, again, oh my God, I, I think I'll get it right, right. now. And right. it's like, and it doesn't change. It is right. still the same, right. you know? Yeah. Um, it, it is for me, I think one of the, so dramaturgically in, in melodramas, there are three things that are really important to have. There is the ingenue slash the suffering body, who is the person that you are following, um, who's, who's, uh, who you're trying to protect because the suffering body has been being destroyed by a villain. Um, the next major thing is the unmasking of the villain. That is in the third act. It is the big re revelation of who the villain of the movie is or the story, the play, whatever. And then there's the destruction of the family because all melodramas are about the destruction or the rebuilding of a family. Anyway, um, uh, I think it's very easy to look at the movie and think from the beginning that our suffering body is Gracie. She has a lisp. She's in chains. You know, she's white. She's a woman. These are all the markers of a great ingenue. And one of the sly things the movie does really well is that it allows, a, a, you know, an Asian boy to become our great suffering body, our beautiful ingenue. And, and in that moment when she says, I'm the boss you think that we're seeing the villain. But in that moment, I felt that the true unmasking of the most dangerous person in the room was Natalie, right? Um, this actress. Um, what, what, who do you think is the villain in the movie? Um, and is there one? I mean, just to deviate slightly from your, the formulation of melodrama, um, it, does that come from the book? It, it's partially from Peter Brooks, but it's Peter also Brooks, just um, yeah. a melodramatic imagination, but also it's just yeah. sort of like 19th century melodrama right. rules. And, and maybe more out of classic melodrama yes, from novels. Yes, totally. Um, because the thing that I, I, I so love about Douglas Sirk melodramas, and I think what Fassbinder loved about Douglas Sirk melodramas, is that uh, we all know the classic sort of almost you know, silent film version of the melodrama, the 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 bat, the villain, the hero, and the ingenue tied up on the train tracks and all that shit. But the sophisticated domestic melodrama of the fifties and before uh, are are about a tangle, an entanglement of people, and the villain is the society, and you can't and kill the society. The society kills us. And so it reveals conditions under which we all live and suffer that there's only, and what's so, you know, and I think Foxminder said it about Cirque's films, there's something dis dissatisfying 
at the end of a cert film. And it's because the people in them are never up to the tasks of solving the problems that they're confronted with. And you want them to, and there's often with Cirque, there's the false happy ending that's slapped on at the end. And it's in inherently untrustworthy. And you know it ha can't possibly uh, sufficiently address or so resolve all the conflicts that have been revealed in the course of the, of the film, right? And, and Fassbender is engaged with this, and, and, then there's and then there's deviations from this within, within Cirque, but I love that, about, and it's what I tried to bring to bear when I did my film Far From Heaven, was a, was a dynamic between these three central characters where just one of them, taking the tiniest step toward their desire, was going to create an entanglement that each of all three of them would suffer within, and it would be a ricochet or the knot around them just tightens, you know? And no, they're not gonna get out. I mean, it, and ironically, it's the white, repressed gay husband yeah. who gets a little closer to satisfying his desire because he can do it undercover and as a white man, you know? And it's the over-determined visibility of the black character in the movie and the very just suggestion that there's sympathy and affection between him and a white woman that disrupts that community so deeply and over, overly, you know, beyond anything warranted, if there is anything warranted in a problem with that kind of a relationship. Anyway, uh, th that, that careful thing. What's crazy about May, December is these women, man, they're not like typical subjects of melodrama because they are so in control. They're so willful. Yeah. And, they're, and they're driven by their own desire, right? And the men yield to their interests. And so that already is a strange, and it was a fascinating thing that I encountered with, with Sammy's script. And, but then, yes, as you've been describing, it's this strange duel between the two and the different kinds of face-offs around power. And what's, what's sort of counterintuitive is that the person who puts up the barrier of repression and says, I'm secure. I'm never going to question my choices. I do not look at myself. Ultimately occupies the most power. And it's maybe, yeah, there's so much, I love it. You guys, that was a masterclass. Um, um, it's, it's so um, exciting to hear how you think of like Cirque and melodrama and fast, Fassbender as well. And, you know, I look at um, all these other uh, elements inside of the film and I think about the fact that it's also Southern, right? It's like, uh, you know, I'm from the South. It's this great Southern Gothic. And the thing I was thinking about as well that made it feel like this amazing Southern Gothic melodrama is the this, this society because there are so many ghosts in their world and yet the ghosts haunt them from the outside and they don't really pierce the bubble of the, of the, of the frame you give us, right? right. Um, what, when you and Sammy were talking about the fact that we would see immediately that someone's dropping off, you know, packages of shit at their house, S-H-I-T, um, um, but not, but we don't actually see anyone throw a milk carton at her or something. You know, like, w uh, what were some of those conversations about um, the quietness of Southern society around, like, impropriety? Well, so what was interesting is that Sammy set the script in Camden, Maine. Oh, wow. Which is this sort of um, phantom location for Peyton Place, and she had never seen. I don't think. Well, I think she'd seen Peyton Place, and may, I don't know if she read the book, but uh, had never been to Camden, Maine. I don't believe, but she loved the idea of setting it in that sort of historical lineage mm -hmm. of Peyton Place. And I was interested in that, and I am imagining New England color and sky for May and all that stuff when I first read it, and the red, white, and blue of Memorial Day and all this stuff, and the piercing blue sky. But as we got closer to the f actual possibility of shooting this movie, the only time that we could shoot it was in the fall. And, and so we had to start rethinking. We could, there was no way we we're going to shoot anywhere in New England uh, for Camden, Maine in the fall. And, uh, and I had just been to Savannah Film Festival where I'd been before for, for, the fe uh, for my last documentary. And... Um, 
it's a crazy place. And it's it also is. changed a lot. You know, it's become more of a, it's not just like that antebellum and, you know, an aspect kind of um, beautiful place that your grandma wants to go to or something. <laughs> it's like a party 24 hour, you know, a lot of fat white people with open <laughs> containers like roaming down the streets, you know, for the bridal shower or the wedding or whatever. You can't get a reduced rate of a hotel any time in the year wow. there. It is like weird. So, and Sam Lasango and I were like, oh, wow, we don't want, I don't see Gracie living in historic downtown Savannah, but oh, Tybee Island is just 20 minutes away from downtown uh, Savannah. And it's a beach community, and then we and we were like, "What about that?" We just did it on the map, but then we went there in, in August of last year. Uh, I can't believe it's just so recently. Um, and the specificity and the strangeness and the light, yeah, and the humidity and the white sucked-in sky and the marshland, you know, riverfront properties in yeah. Tybee and the other island uh, communities was so. We we went off the beaten path of what the film commission folks gave us as houses to look at for the to, as for possible Gracie houses, and we were like, wait, turn here, wait, go there, and we found that street, Catalina Drive. I mean, we probably would have eventually, but we just were so. That's what's so fun when you're on a location scout and you you're on your own and you just find your own way. We found that street. We found that house, that weird pink exterior of that crazy house. We went up to the door, left a note. Said we'd love to visit the inside while we're still in town. We got we heard back from that guy right away. Did you, did you name drop? No, no, wow. we, no, no, no. We just said we're you know making a movie, but Savannah's used to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Georgia has the great tax rebate, yeah. and this of course was another incentive for to, for shooting there. But so much about Savannah became deepened and darkened and made more strange and more latently American in a kind of. Yeah, in, in ways that you're that of course have the weird southern decorum and separation of of place, but also the sort of strange, I don't know, just the sort of omnipresent uh, partying sensibility as well, and the tourist spots that aren't beautiful, yeah. historic, but are kind of ugly and sad and complicated. You know, so we we just ended up shooting in all those places, the kind of places you don't people don't usually shoot in in Savannah. And was that pool? Was it unmade pool? It was already? there. It was oh, unmade, and we wrote it into the script That's as so unmade. Yeah. 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 Okay, so um, I, there's so many elements I have to ask you about. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Also, I have to. You guys have to ask questions. Whatever. Anyway. Um, um, okay, so before I let you guys ask a question or two, um, I wanted to just go through some elements of the of just. Collaborators, I think, are really important. For me, as a screenwriter who had the most amazing experience in my life working with a director I think is a genius, um, I feel so honored that she um, like read my words. We worked on this thing together and had so much fun. And I love director-screenwriter um, collabs. How did you and Sammy find that relationship? You seem to really love her. You've spoken about her so kindly. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Oh, my it. God. She, well, well I, before I ever... I mean, we met on Zoom and we started to talk right away, but... It's the work. It's in the work. Yeah. It's just such a... Just and you guys, this is a hard screenplay to not only... Um, like, watching it, I'm like, this is a hard screenplay to write as, uh, when you follow the rules, right? But it's even yeah. harder to have people read it and see it. And, like, the fact that you all saw such um, delicate and specific writing, and we're like, absolutely, makes me so excited. Well, she was so decisive about the fact that she was going to be indecisive. And that takes... Experience, I think. I always think that's like something that you need to have years of confidence to 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 trust yeah. that you can leave it in a gray area, discomforting place, you know. And that's also where the humor and the satire and the, and that, and that just awkwardness of reading these characters and also watching, you know, um, the focus keep shifting from Gracie to then. Elizabeth, who we thought we trusted as the as the uh, sort of person, the outsider who was going to be the reliable narrator mm -hmm. to take us through the story, and ultimately part open up the space for Joe to emerge, and it really become from a single to a double to a triple portrait, yeah. and and the tenuousness with which he can then occupy 
that space that opens for him around these two incredibly strong, fierce and frightening, in many ways, women, um, was just, again, it was just, that was in the concept. I didn't quite, you know, she just joined us yesterday after the writer's strike. So we haven't had the, I haven't had the pleasure of like sitting on stage and hearing her talk about it after it's been done. But the notes, she, you know, we just had a, we had a great time sharing notes. But then, of course, I had Natalie on one hand and then Julie on the other. And their notes were so keen and so helpful and so to the point. But we all were, it was quite clear, we all loved the same things about the script. We all saw the same potential for the film. You know, and how so Mary we were on Kay the Letourneau same page. was it? Like, was it very, was it like, because I'm a Mary Kay Letourneau stan. It's so interesting to me. I'm like, not stan, but like, that's complicated. Um, but I, I was a, ch- a gay child. Um, so I would just like, there would be these women in tabloids. And I'm like, I'm obsessed. And like, I'd learn everything about them. And I follow it forever because it doesn't leave you. It's like, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, um, I, you know, and as, as you know, you know, definitely, I don't know if everyone here knows, but um, the young man that Mary Kay Letourneau um, groomed did come out and say, like very recently, wait a second. But after her death, he's like, I think, I think I do feel weird about this. Like, I don't know that I did have, um, that I was old enough to make those decisions, which was, you know, a, an about face from everything he'd said the entirety of their you marriage. What's so funny is I haven't, I haven't even seen that. Oh, wow. Is that, that's very recent. That's very, very recent. It's like yeah. 2021 or 20. I'd have to wow. read it again, but yeah. But, but, a, but a good, a good, a good, Year after she passed, yeah, it was after away. she passed, yeah, because yeah, they, they had gotten yeah. a divorce, and, yeah, yeah. But then he was by her side, yes. at her deathbed, like they were still each other's primary, yes, partners through their whole lives, through their whole through this part of Mary Kay's life for sure. Um, and what was the well, point? I was just saying, you know, she, like Mary Kay is in your image book, but how yeah. present was Mary Kay in the script? Was it like this is oh, a yeah. Mary Kay story? No, no. In fact, it was quite. Um, it was quite, and, and I leaned into all the distinctions between Mary Letourneau's story, which, to be honest, I wasn't following as closely as some of my friends were at the time. So I had gay to kind friends. of learn there it were gay all. friends that were following it, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it just depends on who you are. It's not even age. It's just like Kelly was obsessed with yeah. it, for one thing. Wow. Obsessed. And I was just like somewhere else or whatever. <laughs> um, but, um, but then... It became something that was an incredible use. Uh, and I think it was Julianne who was like, no, you got to watch the document, this doc, and you got to check this out. It's nuts. And it helped, it helped, it helped me, and it, and it absolutely helped Julianne and give some specificity to aspects of um, how this relationship could have happened and what is the sort of, what is the myth that these people construct the the younger man and the older woman together uh to kind of enshrine these desires you know and and um and it and it, and it made some change once i did do some of that it also made me want to insert into the script a few insights into that because it was uh it was about this a lot of it to me and to julianne was about this uh sense the sort of fantasy of uh, what we called the sort of princess syndrome where Gracie considers herself like a damsel in distress, a princess in a tower. And that the young Joe is this kind of knight with this this young virility and this, you know, almost Greco-Roman, you know, allure. And that he's going to climb up the, the garden wall and save her from her domestic life. And what's so, and everyone has a myth with their romantic life. Everyone has a, a narrative that they repeat or they go back to or some touchstone, right? This one has a certain level <laughs> of extra denial and, and perversity, but it, what, it, what that story also does is deny the age difference because mm-hmm. it imbues him with the power, yes. which is what inspired that, you know, who was in charge? You had this Who great, you had that great moment that really uh, sticks with me a lot because I, I, I read all the, I've read Joe Orton's diaries when I was in um, Spain and uh, in Italy, and then I also was reading Tennessee Williams' diaries, and I was like, and they, they all will be like, have these asides, We're like I hung out with this thirteen-year-old last night, and like it was dark, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what? Like, um, should you still be in the canon? Um, and like, you know, 
and I and but then I was like, okay, they're all in Europe. Like like in the 1970s, let me walk around and see what 13 year olds look like around here. And so I'd walk around much like you do in that scene when they go to the high school. And it was startling to me. I was like, Joe Orton was a pedophile. Like there is no getting around it. Like there is no 13 year old I've ever seen that does not look like a child. You know. Right. Um, and so to to make sense of her psychosis as this thing where she does fully transform him outside of his youth and into some armor is yeah it's genius okay i'll open it up to you guys um i will just i will just say one thing before i do um me and me and janixa joke a lot about with another friend about how like people who win best costume designs or like any of those design awards always win them for like the most costumes not like necessarily the best it's like you did seven thousand costumes and like (laughs) you know you know some renaissance period you win um, but like people who are just like making like making really smart decisions about what everyone's wearing when like don't always get it. And I just want to say whoever your costume designer is is a genius. April Napier. April Napier. Everyone hire her. The fact that she put Natalie Portman in slingback kitten heels as she walks <laughs> on on through the sand, I was like, that's genius. Like that is such actress behavior. Um, I love it. That is so beautiful. No, it's just it's true. Um, okay, who has a question? Oh, you were quick. <laughs> you got it. Okay, someone's running one down. Uh-oh. You're right in front of us, Bob. <laughs> Out of all the movies you've directed, what would you say was the most aesthetically challenging? And is it Far From Heaven? <laughs> um, no, just because Far From Heaven had such a specific sort of source of series of references, right? That were such a um, such a privilege to um, to surrender to and try to ingest and study and in a language that had its own what you what I always am looking for and you probably feel this I, you might feel similarly when you're writing this versus writing that is you're you're looking for a series of rules that you make yourself. Yes. That you try to you try to limit. They create a formal and stylistic language and a map, roadmap. And so Cirque and and Maxwell Fools provided a very specific and um, you know extor- exquisite um, point of reference. I would I would say I mean both both um, Velvet Goldmine and and I'm not there, which were these. I mean, again, Velvet Goldmine also focused on this very specific moment in pop culture in the 70s and the interrelation, the the sort of a love affair between the UK and America and how that gave birth to the glam rock thing. It just had its antecedents in in a long, which I wanted to put into the film into a long queer history that was often very, very um, anglophilic probably in my leanings. Um, but so that was about bringing in all of these stylistic mashups. Um, one of my favorite, and it was, you know, again, manifest by Sandy Powell, the costume designer yeah. of Velvet Goldmine, was the silent screen m- montage during, I think it's during um, Virginia Plain is playing the Roxy Music song. And it shows the creation of the sort of uh, mini... Uh, uh, production of the creation of the Brian Slade and Mandy Slade image. And it's done as a silent screen, high speed little montage to that film where I think uh, uh, Eddie Izzard is like, hey kids, let's put on a show, hit cue music. But Sandy's costumes paralleled 70s clothes style with 1920s clothes style in this incredibly effortless, gorgeous, consummate um, realization of those two. Because the 70s was also very interested in the past and in old Hollywood and in nostalgia, and it incorporated a lot of those references into its style. But I think the most complicated was probably I'm Not There because of the very different, distinct worlds that it tried to all put together in a sort of tapestry that um, each had to be realized with, again, limited means, um, but as thoroughly and as distinctively as possible. I like that, because I would have said I'm not there, and um, Superstar were my two hardest ones for you. You're a genius. That was a great question. 
Um, uh, uh, one last, um, okay, I think, do we have time for one? I don't know. Okay, we do. We have time for one more question. Um, let me just see everyone who's around. Um, oh, he's so insistent. I should say yes. <laughs> but you're next. If we have a time for another one, you're next. First of all, I just want to thank you for your appreciation of Douglas Sir. My, my great aunt used to take us into Hollywood and we saw all those films and the feel of them, mm -hmm. those, those big ashtrays, big lamps and everything, it just was, it was magic. Yeah. But I also wanted to ask you, I, I had an acting teacher a long time ago. He, he said to me, if I, I couldn't find uh, a moment that, that I could connect myself to a scene, think of as if, as if it, something happened to you that you can bring into the scene. Uh, the, the question is, is your image book a kind of way of making an as-if? It's it, that the, you're, you're getting the feeling into the, into the film of uh, you're using that as a reference. Absolutely, very, mu very much so. It's an as-if based on e existing references of other films, films that sometimes have thematic relevance like as you, as you see in the image book, um, Sunset Boulevard, The Older Woman, Younger Man Story, or um, of course, The Graduate, or um, Manhattan, which is the older man, younger woman story, uh, Lolita, et cetera. Um, but also how some of those films, particularly Manhattan and The Graduate, use a, a, an incredibly elegant, minimalist sort of visual language to convey, and they're both comedies, but it's the restraint of the camera and the frame to me, that makes the comedy in both films, in, in Manhattan and in um, uh, The Graduate, so effective. And if The Graduate was conventionally shot with a million cuts back and forth, the jokes would be gone. The, the, the timing of the actors would be compromised. And similarly, in, with Gordon Willis' cinematography in Manhattan, the way actors move in and out of the frame and the frame just holds and the room just empties when they leave the frame and they walk back in, you know? There's such uh, sophistication and beauty in that. Are you at all interested in doing uh, your version of Time to Love and a Time to Die? <laughs> uh, not, not imminently. But it's an incredible movie. And it's, it speaks a lot about Cirque's own, own personal story with his son. There was a documentary that was made for the Locarno Film Festival that did a complete Cirque retrospective that I went to last year. I think it was last year. Um, and I'm, I was invited to be part of the documentary. It's the only time I'll ever be billed alongside Hannah Shagula. Um, she's a star of Fassbender's films. Um, but uh, uh, it talks a lot about this unbelievable story of Cirque's son, who was a Nazi youth, uh, who was abducted into the Nazi, Nazi youth culture when his, he and his wife divorced. Um, I think we have one last one right here. Um, and while the, while, the, while the microphone's being walked over there, um, I just wanted to ask, you know, I need to, fill, I need to feed the internet. Um, a little bit. Um, listen, this like film updates, fucking um, pop craze. <laughs> they like they get a lot of they get a lot of movement for movies that can't be sold right now with um, actors, right? So um, the, the the thing that I, the thing the internet is going to really die for is you and Christine have done five thousand. Where's Christine? She lived there. She you, had to leave. She left. You and Christine have done she five thousand moves. To when you. I talk. <laughs> I'm going to text her that she said that. Um, you guys have done uh, five thousand movies together. What is your next one? And can uh, I be in it? Uh, oh my God, <laughs> Jeremy, you just blew my brain off. It's it's a Joaquin Phoenix uh, gay love story set in the thirties. Well, Did you hear this? No, film up. Did you hear this about that? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, okay, that's good. That'll feed them enough. But do you have another one outside of that one? Everyone already knows about that. Oh, one. oh, everyone knows that. Yeah, um, we're all on film updates and. Pop I think Crane. everybody knows my my shit. Uh, uh, trust, trust. The, the novel by Hernan Diaz, which Kate Winslet brought to me that we're going to do at HBO. Oh. Um, the novel won the Pulitzer Prize this year. It's just... See, it didn't sound like everyone knew about that no, one. No, no. It's, <laughs> um, it's 
it's a little down the road, <laughs> but I'm so excited about it. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> okay. You got it. You have to. Did you read it? You have no, to I'm read, read it. I'm oh gonna my read god, it. you have to read it. Okay, okay. So I've been trying to read Percival Everett. Everyone's been like, "Yeah, I'm gonna read Percival Everett. He's the best American living American author." And I'm like, "Okay," because I've only been reading Japanese novels. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, I'm gonna. I'll read that. Trust. Trust. Okay. Okay. Everybody, every, book club. Um, yeah. meet, we'll meet back here next month. Uh, hi. I kind of have a general question. Um, I play the violin. I'm in orchestra, so I really love paying attention to like movie scores. I really love listening to movie scores. Yeah. So I was wondering if you had a favorite of your own movies, and also if there was like any movie that you had difficulty deciding what you wanted the sound to be like. What was the first question? If I have a favorite, if you had a favorite score of your films. Oh, of my films. Yeah. Oh, um, or it's, just in general too, I guess. That's hard because I've worked with Elmer Bernstein on the last film he ever composed music for, In Far From Heaven, and then I worked with Carter Burwell, and he did one of the most beautiful scores and of uh, of the music I've heard of his, which is a lot and exquisite in in Carol. The 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 score for Carol is something um, really special. And then Marcelo Zaros, who just um, did this way, you know, came in and, and incorporated this, this existing score and uh, created it and made it his own beautiful, you know, piece of work. Um, and, I, and then I, I had worked with him on Dark Waters and he kind of came to the rescue on that, on that film and, sh and did a, a massive score in, in length in its record time and it was just so lovely to work with and another Brazilian like Fonzie, my editor. Um, so um, I think, I don't remember what else you asked. I also asked like, if there was a film that you were difficult deciding. Oh. Between, not so much, no. I, I have to say no, because whether it's my own obsessive thinking about music or, or Fonzie's ear, and for the way that he um, finds source music, I mean, um, temp music, temp scores, as we're cutting, he blows me away. And this is particularly true with Wonderstruck, um, the, the, the music that he, so much of it he found for that film and the way we, and the way it was orchestrated and we gave that to to Carter and it gave him such a template to to work from but uh yeah between all all of us are sort of music nerds so I have I sort of have the it cover <laughs> I, I love a, you can always tell a director that hears when they write or hears when they Im make images and like you you obviously have such a respect a profound respect for music you mean like two like narrative music movies and like yeah. you know it's all over your films this has been so cool you guys got to see me go on my Let first me, date with, thank you with Todd Haynes so much it's amazing thank you man thank you oh, so much good. I have I have uh, uh, three things to say uh, that are really important. Um, one is you guys get to look at the image book down here somewhere. Um, so take your time, line up. It's going to be really chill. Two, me and my friends in grad school had a Christmas carol party, um, which where we all dressed up like 1950s characters, and it was really fun. You guys should all do it. And three, thank you, New York Film Festival. Thank you, New York Film Festival. Um, this was so cool.